And Lord, for ourselves as we prepare ourselves to come to your word. We come, Lord, as, as beggars just asking to be fed by your word, knowing that your word is sufficient for everything that we need to know about ourselves, everything that we need to know about you. We know that your word is inerrant, uh, that it is perfect, that it is inspired, breathed out by the Spirit through the human authors, and that it is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And Lord, you know what we need today. And so we ask that you would use your word to meet those needs. Grow us in Christ's likeness. Strengthen your people. And may Christ be glorified as we study your word. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, please turn to 1 Samuel. We'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 13 today. As we continue in our study of 1 Samuel, we'll be going through the whole chapter of 1 Samuel chapter 13 today. I was reading some funny stories this week. Uh, you've probably seen all these websites, like there's a website called Stupid Laws, I think it's called, where you can find these ridiculous, completely outdated laws, like you can't have an elephant on Sundays, or you know, stuff like that. It's just completely ridiculous. But there are also websites where you can read police reports of ridiculous excuses that people make up when they get pulled over. And maybe you've been tempted to do just that. Uh, I was reading one story this past week of a, a traffic stop that took place in the UK. It must have been a few years ago. But the police had pulled over a man for speeding and, and driving recklessly. And when they pulled him over, the excuse that he gave them for his crime was that he had just picked up his dinner at a fast food restaurant and he needed to get home before it got cold. Uh, sure, makes perfect sense. Seems legit. There's another story, and this one's pretty wild, uh, of a man who got pulled over in uh, California for going 80 miles an hour in a 55 zone. And when the police asked him, uh, you know, what was the rush? Why is he going so fast? His excuse was that a bee had gotten into his car and was buzzing around his head. And his thinking was, if he speeds up, that, the, that gravity will send the bee into the back seat. Again, yeah, that seems legit, sure. Uh, I'm sure that cops uh, and law enforcement officials could write all kinds of stories about the excuses that they hear when they pull people over. I'm sure there are some hilarious stories that aren't even on the internet uh, that people come up with for breaking the law. People come up with all sorts of explanations and justifications for breaking laws. And actually, that goes back to the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? Uh, when Adam and Eve fell into sin, Adam said, in essence, it's the woman that made me do it. The woman, by the way, God, that you put here in the garden with me. Uh, when uh, Eve speaks, she says, basically, the devil made me do it. Uh, what about you? What excuses have you made or have you thought about making to justify breaking the law? What excuses have you used to justify sinning. As we continue in our study of 1 Samuel today, we're going to resume with a chapter that 
records a trial that King Saul endured early on in his tenure as Israel's king. Now we've seen Saul become Israel's first uh, appointed mortal king after the people of Israel demanded that Samuel appoint a king who was like the kings of the nations that surrounded them, uh, which by the way was simultaneously a rejection of God as their king. In chapter 11, we saw King Nahash, uh, if you remember, invade Israel, and we saw God's faithfulness to deliver uh, his people from this, other, uh, from this other king, King Nahash, despite Israel's rejection of God. God was still faithful to Israel, even though Israel had been unfaithful to God. And in the aftermath of the battle that took place, in which King Nahash was defeated, we saw Samuel step in and call, uh, issue a call of repentance uh, for, for the sins of the people of Israel before the Lord. So the Israelites were, were really left with only two options. Uh, first, as we saw in chapter 12, verse 14, Samuel said, If you will fear the Lord and serve Him and listen to His voice and not rebel against the command of the Lord, then both you and also the King who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. The only other option, of course, would be laid out in the ver- verse that follows where Samuel said this. He said, If you will not listen to the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the command of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. And he repeats the offer in the verses that close chapter 12 where Samuel says to the people of Israel, verses 24 and 25, Only fear the Lord and serve Him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things He has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, both you and your king will be swept away. So, what did they choose? Which option did they go with? What did they do? We don't know uh, yet. We don't know yet. It's kind of left with a, a little bit of a cliffhanger. But this conclusion of chapter 12 would probably give us a, a little bit of maybe hopeful optimism for the chapter that would follow. We would hope to see that after a call to repentance that there would be massive uh, repentance, nationwide repentance. After all, hasn't this been the pattern of Israel going all the way back to Judges where you know the people fall away from God and God raises up a judge who would deliver them and in time they fall away from God again and He raises up a judge and they repent and they come back to the Lord and it goes over and over and over again. So we would think that we're on that side of that cycle, right? Where, where now there's been a, an issue, there's been issued a, a call to repentance and so here we go. Now we're going to see some repentance, right? Not so fast. Things still apparently haven't gotten bad enough for the people of Israel just yet. They were still too fond of their newfound, at least sense of independence from God as their sovereign leader. Of course, we know that nobody is ever independent from God, but people do have a sense or a perception of independence from God, absolutely. But things apparently needed to get much, much worse before they would start to improve. And chapter 13 is going to show us that things get pretty bad for Israel. Uh, King Saul is really going to be tested in this chapter, and he will fail miserably. Uh, Rather than being the solution for Israel's problems, what becomes clear in this chapter is that Saul was actually part of Israel's problems. And in fact, in one sense, he becomes the cause of 
more problems in this chapter. But the point of this chapter is that difficult circumstances do not justify disobedience unto God. Let me say that again. That's really important. Difficult circumstances do not justify disobedience unto God. And it's important that I say that because we often use difficult circumstances as an excuse to sin. No, if anything, difficult circumstances should propel us, should provoke us toward a deeper faith and a stronger walk, a closer walk with the Lord. And so as we begin our study of 1 Samuel 13, we should maybe uh, first remember as a backdrop for the events recorded in this chapter that God is the one who ordains every affliction, every trial, every difficult circumstance that we face. And that He doesn't ordain these things for our harm, but He ordains them for ultimately our greatest good. God's Word reveals Him to be sovereign over every molecule in existence, every atom in the universe. Nothing happens apart from God's sovereign decree. Nothing happens without God sovereignly ordaining that it will come to pass. And this is why God can declare the end from the beginning. It's why God can make promises, promises that we can stand on, promises that will be fulfilled to the praise of His glorious grace in time if they haven't already been fulfilled. God is good for the promises He makes. John Calvin said this. He said, quote, When visited with affliction, or difficult circumstances, right? When visited with affliction, it is of great importance that we should consider it as coming from God and as expressly intended for our good. End quote. Difficult circumstances never, ever justify disobedience unto God. If anything, trials, afflictions, difficult circumstances should draw us closer to the Lord. Because difficult circumstances serve a wonderful purpose in reminding us that our lives are are here today and and gone tomorrow. Our lives are just a, a quickly fleeting mist. Isaiah says this, he says, "...the grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers." That's you and me. "...the grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever." That's Isaiah 40, verses 7 and 8. Difficult circumstances remind us of this. They remind us that life is here today and it can be gone tomorrow. And they remind us of how completely inadequate, how completely insufficient you and I are, but they also remind us of how completely sufficient and how completely adequate God is. This is a lesson that you and I must know. And if this is a lesson that you and I must know, then this is also a lesson that a godly king, if he's going to be a godly king, must also know. And so it's a lesson that King Saul will need to know if he's going to be a good and godly king. Let's start with 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 1-4. to It says, Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 42 years over Israel. 
Now Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel, of which 2,000 were with Saul in Mishmash in the hill country of Bethel, while 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah of Benjamin. But he sent away the rest of the people, each to his tent. Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. All Israel heard the news that Saul, was, uh, that Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become odious to the Philistines. The people were then summoned to Saul at Gilgal. What we have here at the beginning in verse 1 is just kind of the typical summary statement that you'll find at the beginning of any king's reign. We see this same kind of introduction in, in uh, other places in First and Second Samuel, as well as in First uh, and Second Kings and elsewhere, uh, you know, where it says, you know, this is the king, this is when he started reigning, this is how long he reigned. Now, does everybody have their Bibles open? I want you to look at your Bibles for a second. If you're, if you're reading the NASB 95 translation, which is the translation I preach from, uh, you'll see that there are a couple of words in this verse, in verse 1, that are in italics, which means that the translators inserted those words for clarification. Those aren't words that were found in the original. They're added for clarification. So translating this verse literally would actually sound something like this. It would sound like this. Saul was one year old when he began to reign, and he reigned for two years over Israel. And we know that's not true. That's obviously not accurate at all. The issue with verse 1 here, chapter 13, verse 1, which is recognized as being one of the most difficult and just complicated verses in uh, the entire Bible to translate and interpret correctly, is that at some point along the line uh, of the text being transmitted, the numbers for Saul's age and time of reign as king seem to have been left out. Now, this isn't a critically important verse or anything. In fact, there, there are very, very, very few verses in which we find such omissions. Uh, so it, it's, it's a rare thing. It's not an important verse, so it's not that big of a deal. But given what we can learn from other parts of Scripture, whether that be 1 Samuel or Acts uh, or other parts of Scripture, uh, some translators argue that the missing numbers appear to be 30 for Saul's age and 40 before the number 2. Another explanation, and I think this one is probably the one that makes the most sense to me, is that the one year indicates that it's been one year since Saul was anointed as king, and that Saul was only a legitimate king for two years. That is, he only had God's blessing upon him for two years. Those are the, the years that are recorded in chapters 13 to 15. After these two years, Saul would be rejected as Israel's rightful king. Uh, Whatever the case may be, maybe the, the ESV translates this the best. They say, uh, they translate it to say, Saul lived for one year, which I agree with. That's a good translation of that. Saul lived for one year and then became king when he had reigned for two years over Israel. And that's where the story pushes forward. Uh, and, and we read the rest of the story that ensues. So the story begins with Saul having put together this army, constructed an army that consisted of 3,000 soldiers, uh, which you might realize is not a whole lot of soldiers. That's not 
an enormous army by any measure. Uh, 2,000 of them are with him in Mishmash or Michmash, uh, which was about seven miles northeast of Jerusalem. And uh, a thousand of them are with his son, Jonathan, back in Gibeah, uh, which you might remember is Saul's hometown. Uh, but this is actually the first time that we're introduced to, uh, to Jonathan. And it's strange that the first mention of him doesn't indicate to us that, he is, uh, that he's Saul's son. Uh, but we do learn that in verse 16. But we aren't sure how much time has passed. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm thinking it's probably a year. A year has passed, but we do know that for the first few chapters, the Philistines have been giving Israel all kinds of problems. In fact, for a whole generation or more, a couple generations, they've been giving them problems. We see them giving them problems back in Judges, but it seemed like they were squished. They were not. They came back. Israel was now surrounded by various nations and all kinds of idolatrous people, but it was the Philistines who at this point are the greatest threat to Israel, to their, to their well-being, to their safety. Uh, to their security. That's reflected in what Saul, uh, what, what uh, God had said to his prophet Samuel back in chapter 9, where God told Samuel in verse 16 of chapter 9, about this time tomorrow I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel, and he will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. It's the only people group that God specifically mentions in that Uh, in that text. He says, for I have regarded my people because their cry has come to me. Only the Philistines. The Philistines seem like the biggest problem. So it appears that Saul, uh, as this chapter begins, he's finally ready, maybe a year later, whatever, uh, he's finally ready to prepare to face one of the greatest challenges that he would face as king. That being the Philistine domination and oppression of the Israelites. So this chapter marks the beginning of Saul's attempt to finally deal with them. Uh, We should remember that God had given Saul directions for dealing with them already through his prophet Samuel. Back in chapter 10, verses 7 and 8, Samuel gave this message to Saul from God. This is what Samuel said to Saul. He said, It shall be when these signs come to you, do for yourself what the occasion requires, for God is with you. And you shall go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. You shall wait seven days until I come to you and show you what you should do. Now that is a very important text for the text that we come to today. So hold on to that. He was supposed to do whatever his hand, you know, whatever there was for him to do. That was basically a way of saying, uh, you know, go to war with the Philistines. But that's not what Saul did. In fact, he didn't go to war with the Philistines at all until now. And so we should understand that Saul has delayed acting in obedience to God's Word revealed through Samuel. And how many awful things have happened since that instruction was given to Saul? Since the day that that Samuel told him, hey, this is what you're going to need to do with the Philistines. How many terrible things have happened since that day because Saul has delayed obedience to the Lord? I mean, we can only imagine. 
But it seems that Saul's hand was finally forced when his son, you got to love that it was his son that started a war for him, his son Jonathan forced his hand by striking the garrison, the leader of the Philistine army that was in Geba. Uh, news starts to travel, as news always does, and the Philistines are just beside themselves, right? They're outraged. And they're already hostile toward the Israelites, so they're ready to go to war over this. And Saul responds to their anger and their outrage by sounding a trumpet for the land. He realizes how upset they are. He calls for the Israelites to prepare for war. All 3,000 of his soldiers. Uh, What's interesting is that as word spreads, what it tells us is that the Israelites hear that it was Saul and not Jonathan who struck the garrison. But with that news is also a report that the Israelites have become odious. I I don't have a sense of smell, but uh, stench is another word for odious. They become a stench in the nostrils of the Philistines. The Philistines are ready to wipe them out, to just obliterate them. They're ready to go to war. And all of this could have just been avoided if Saul had only immediately done, rather than delaying obedience, if he had only immediately done what God had called him and instructed him to do, rather than delaying and postponing what was really inevitable. It was going to have to happen eventually. The tensions between the two cultures were so great. It was inevitable. But this is a good reminder for us that it's better late than never when it comes to obeying the Lord. Better late than never. It's also a reminder to us that we can save ourselves a lot of grief and and trouble by obeying God immediately, obeying Him now rather than waiting until later, until a time that will be more convenient. Listen, it's never going to be more convenient. You're always going to have an excuse. You're always going to have a reason to delay being obedient to God. And so you need to be prepared ahead of time to set your excuses aside and to just say, whatever God instructs, I will do now. I will do immediately. The Philistines were this idolatrous, godless culture. They they represented uh, the world, right? They represented just a very worldly uh, culture. How much of that worldliness, how much of that idolatry snuck in and seeped into Israel because Saul delayed? Again, we can only imagine, but, but likewise, as God's people in the middle of the hostile culture that we live in, we should not delay in obedience to God. One of the ways that we see people delaying in obedience to God is by refusing or just waiting to, to, to say something until it's too late. Not speaking truth. In a time where people are convinced that everybody has their own truth, the church by and large is silent toward so many of the pressing issues of our time. So many of the idols and the evils of our culture. How much evil how many idols have crept into the church because of our silence when it comes to controversial topics because we don't want to offend anybody right guess what the gospel is just going to be offensive we don't have an excuse for being silent in the face of great evils and travesties being committed 
if there had been, and it seems there was, some sort of truce that had been worked out between Israel and the Philistines, even that would be tragic, wouldn't it? I mean, think about it. Are, are we to have a truce with the culture around us? A lot of Christians act like it, don't they? We're tempted to act like it too. Sometimes we probably do. But are we supposed to have a truce with the culture around us? Absolutely not. By, by no means are we to have a truce with the culture. The church has no room for compromise when it comes to our calling. We're here to represent God. We're here to represent God's purposes. And so we can't be, and we, we won't be, able to avoid speaking out against the evils of uh, this culture that are viewed as being controversial. We aren't to compromise with the culture. We aren't to draw up a, a truce with the Philistines of the world. We must be willing to do what is right and to say what is true. But here's what we're going to need to keep in mind. Just like this, this breach of the truce that apparently was in place, it was at least a breach of the peace with the Philistines on Jonathan's behalf is what leads to some difficult circumstances for Israel. We need to know that if we act in obedience, if we speak the truth to the culture around us about the evils of our age, it can lead to some difficult circumstances for us as well. But guess what? That's okay. That, that's okay. God is with us. If, if, if we are called to speak His truth and to do what is right, okay, if there are consequences, we'll take them. We'll, we'll deal with them when they come. God's grace will be sufficient, whatever those consequences might be. It is better that we should please man than that we should, or please God than that we should please man, right? It's infinitely better to be despised and rejected by the world than it is to be despised and rejected by God. And so we have to do what's right. We have to speak truth. The fourth verse here ends by telling us the people were then summoned to Saul at Gilgal. So this was the second step that Samuel had instructed Saul to do. He was supposed to go there and wait for seven days for Samuel to meet him now, there. However long he's been king, uh, he may not have followed the word of God given through Samuel until this point, but he's doing it now. So however long it's been, however long he's delayed, okay, he shouldn't have delayed, but we've got to give him credit because he is at least trying to do it now and better late than never. But this is where the real test the real trial would start for King Saul. Let's continue, verses 5-7. to It says, Now the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance. And they came up and camped in Mishmash east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed, then the people hid themselves in caves and thickets in cliffs in cellars and in pits. Also, some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. But as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people following him trembling. So Samuel had told Saul to wait for him for seven days. And that after seven days, he would meet him in Gilgal. 
But before that much time elapses, before these seven days pass, the Philistine army is rounded up and they are armed and they are ready for war. And the chapter, you remember the chapter ended up uh, or opened up telling us that Saul had 3,000 soldiers. And I, I was talking about how, how small that seems. Well, now we see how small it is because now we're seeing that the Philistines outnumber them more than 10 to 1. Uh, we read that there are 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and, and people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance. So more people than they could possibly number are coming up against these 3,000 uh, soldiers for Israel. Uh, this was well beyond anything that Israel was equipped or prepared uh, to deal with adequately uh, at this point. And as a result, the Israelites, uh, the army, starts running for their lives, uh, which is always a bad sign. But what else are they supposed to do, right? So they hide themselves in caves and cliffs, thickets and pits, anywhere that they could find to hide themselves and prevent themselves from being either killed or taken as slaves to the Philistines. They're basically scattering like cockroaches when the light gets turned on. So Saul finds himself now in quite the predicament. Uh, His son has poked this angry bear, and it turns out that this bear has teeth, and that this bear is ferocious, and that this bear is out for blood. So Saul's army has, everybody's gone their own way, uh, leaving him with no earthly defense against the Philistines. We can only imagine how much panic, how afraid he must have been feeling at this point as he waits the seven days or tries to wait the seven days waiting for Samuel to show up. Here's the good news. The good news, which is something that doesn't seem to have crossed Saul's mind at this point, by the way. The good news is that, yes, Saul is going through a trial here, but God has ordained it. And that's the good news. That should have been enough to comfort him and to strengthen his resolve to stand his ground and obey God. The good news is God is the one who has ordained this affliction, this trial. Has He not? Doesn't He ordain everything that comes to pass? He does. Does He not ordain everything that transpires? He does. God ordains everything that comes to pass, including the trials, including the afflictions, including the difficult circumstances that you and I face and that Saul faces. Now before we see Saul's reaction, before we see what he does, let's ask ourselves this question. What is the right thing for Saul to do? What, what should Saul do in these circumstances? And the answer is pretty straightforward. He should obey God, right? He should trust in the Lord with all of his heart and lean not on his own understanding, to paraphrase the proverb. And likewise, when we're faced with difficult circumstances, when we're faced with maybe a moment of crisis, we need to learn to do the same not to lean on our own understanding, but to trust in the Lord with all of our heart. Because trials have a way of showing how thoroughly and completely inadequate and insufficient we are, but they also show how adequate and completely sufficient for every purpose and every promise God is. What did God say to Paul? 
when Paul prayed for for his difficult circumstances, his thorn in the flesh to be removed from him, God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. In other words, Paul, I get it. This is a thorn in the flesh. I get it. You've asked me three times now. You want it removed. But guess what? All you need is my grace. Don't you think the same is true for you? It is. It is. Here's what we must know. We must know that His grace is always sufficient for us, whatever we may face in life. Will trials come? You better believe that trials will come. Otherwise, you're going to be blindsided. Yes, you can count on it. Trials will come. Will God's grace be sufficient for you in your trials? Yes. Every single time. Let's see how Saul responds to this difficult situation. Let's continue with verses 8-14. to It says, Now he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. But Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, Because I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the appointed days and that the Philistines were assembling at Mishmash. Therefore I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, You have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which He commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for Himself a man after His own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as a ruler over His people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you." So apparently, the instruction to wait seven days meant that he would come at the end of seven days, not on the seventh day. But by the time the seventh day rolls around, Saul's men, all his people, the little army that he had, they were all running for their lives. They were all deserting him. They were abandoning the cause. The danger was just too great at this point. They saw how outnumbered they were. In fact, we don't read of anyone encouraging Saul or his army to stand strong and to just trust unwaveringly in the Lord, which is an indication of the condition of Israel at this point. They're saying, okay, well, hey, you said to wait seven days. This is the seventh day. Samuel's nowhere to be seen. See ya. I'm out of here. Now, if you remember Samuel's instruction, the reason for his presence being needed in Gilgal was to present sacrifices and offerings unto the Lord. And so Saul comes up with, with what seems to be a pretty good idea, a good solution, a good remedy given Samuel's absence, at least in his mind. Verse 9 tells us, So Saul said, Bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. Was that the right thing to do? Absolutely not. We've read the text. We, we see the rebuke that he gets for having done this. 
But it's easy for us to understand, if we put ourselves in his shoes, it's easy for us to understand why he saw this as the remedy, the solution for this situation. But we need to understand that the Jewish ceremonial and sacrificial system allowed only certain people to make sacrifices. Only certain people were supposed to present offerings and sacrifices. That was the priests. And Saul's thinking is that this would be an ideal time for God to just make an exception to that rule. And so he has violated God's rules, God's laws pertaining to worship, and he feels justified in having done so, no doubt about it. Now, I imagine that Nadab and Abihu also felt justified in their sin, uh, making just a, a tiny exception, right? They were the sons of Aaron who offered strange fire unto God and who immediately lost their lives for having worshipped God in a way that was contrary to the instructions that God had given to Israel for worshipping Him. And I imagine that Uz felt justified in his sin too. We'll get to that story in our study of First and Second Samuel. But you'll remember that he touched the Ark of the Covenant uh, as it fell to the ground, trying to prevent it from, uh, from falling into the, the mud. And he instantly lost his life for doing so as well. But the fact is that difficult circumstances, trials, afflictions, hardships, whatever you want to call it, they do not justify disobedience to God. If anything, they should propel us closer to the Lord. If only Saul would have waited. In fact, what we see here is he needed to wait maybe another hour or so, just another few minutes maybe. If only he would have waited because the seventh day wasn't over yet, he could have remained blameless before God in how he dealt with this trial. Instead of drawing near to the Lord, what this trial did is it served to push him away from the Lord. Instead of trusting in the Lord while he's counting you know, the days down, he's just counting the days down. He's, he is maybe even counting the minutes down until Samuel's supposed to be there. But as soon as he finishes offering these sacrifices in Samuel's place, Samuel comes to the scene. And Saul goes out to meet him and to greet him, thinking that everything is just honky-dory, everything is, is just fine, only to be rebuked by Samuel, who asks Saul, what have you done? What have you done? It's somewhat reminiscent of, of God calling out to Adam and Eve after they had just sinned in the Garden of Eden. Just like Adam tried to cover up his sin with fig leaves, here is Saul trying to cover up his sin with just this facade of religiosity. And it fails. Samuel sees right through it. Saul tries to offer an explanation, some kind of justification for his sin. And while he may have explained why he did what he did, he cannot justify what he did. In other words, he might be able to explain why he did what he did, but he cannot excuse what he did. And so Samuel rebukes him strongly, sharply, as he should have. He says to him, you, should have, you, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. What this means is that a dynasty was at stake. 
God would not now grant Saul a dynasty, a system in which his son would be the king that followed after him, and the king that would follow after his son would be one of his sons, and one of his sons, and so on and so forth. But Samuel continues saying this, he says, but now your kingdom shall not endure. In other words, there's not going to be your son being appointed as king. Now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Man, those are some hard words, aren't they? Samuel had some harsh things to say to Saul. But Samuel's words speak to us as well. They, they rebuke us as well in that they remind us that God isn't willing to negotiate the boundaries that He has given us in His Word. He isn't interested in almost obedience. He isn't interested in half-hearted obedience. He will not be pleased by things that we do according to our own wisdom, our own planning when God's wisdom instructs us to do otherwise. So Saul's sin, even though he's trying to excuse it, all he can do is explain it. He can't excuse it. It was inexcusable. And it revealed that he was not a man after God's own heart. If he had been a man after God's own heart, he wouldn't have compromised. He wouldn't have been almost obedient. He wouldn't have settled for being almost faithful to God. Now, it would be really easy for us to look at this and say, I really don't see how what he did was all that bad. But we need to understand two things. Number one, God is worthy of all honor, praise, glory, worship, and obedience. And secondly, we need to understand that God's Word tells us exactly what He is pleased by and how He is to be worshipped. That is very, very important. What we see here is that God does not negotiate in how He is to be worshipped. Our confession says this, the London Baptist Confession of 1689, uh, chapter 22, paragraph 1, says this. It says, The acceptable way of worshipping the true God is instituted by Himself. Not by us. By Himself and so is limited by His own revealed will that He may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. End quote. What that means is that He may not be worshipped the way that we feel like worshiping Him. He has told us how to worship Him. He may not be worshiped according to the imagination and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan. Do you get the implication of that statement? Let me ask you this. How do you know the difference between those two things? Your ideas and the suggestions of Satan. How can we prove that something of our own imagination isn't a suggestion of Satan? In fact, we can't. And so it's important that we worship God in a manner that is informed by God Himself in His Word. We refer to this as the regulative principle of worship. Now, there is another school of thought out there. It's called the normative principle of worship, which basically says you can do anything in worshiping God as long as His Word doesn't forbid it. Try telling that to Nadab and Abihu. 
Try telling that to Saul here. Yeah. Let me bring you to the fullest conclusion of this principle, the regulative principle of worship. In this circumstance here in 1 Samuel 13, it was more important that God be worshipped rightly than that Saul survive. It was more important that God be worshipped rightly than that Saul survive. Now, if that surprises you, if that seems shocking to you, it probably means that you've got a low view of God. It shouldn't surprise you because that's what we see throughout His Word. If Saul wanted to gain the help of God, the help of Yahweh, he needed to know that disobedience was not the way. That was not the solution. God is more, of course, He's always more than able to deliver His people from their enemies and oppressors, from difficult circumstances. His grace is always sufficient. So if He doesn't deliver us from them, He will deliver us through them. Always. But disobedience, sin, is not the way to receive God's blessing. What a backwards way of thinking that is, isn't it? How can a holy God who hates sin, how can He reward it by blessing it? How can a holy God bless disobedience? The answer is, He can't. He can't. This past week I had a conversation with a good and faithful brother in Christ, a pastor in our region, And he has seen a lot of people in his church leave recently. And so he contacted me asking me to pray for him. Because if things don't change soon for their church, if people don't start coming, uh, they've got finances to last them about 20 more months, and then they will have to close the doors. He's tempted to be pragmatic, you see. He didn't say that. He didn't have to say that. I, I know that. He's tempted to be pragmatic. That is, he's tempted to do whatever is necessary to get people into the church, whether that's preaching sugar-coated sermons or bringing in music that's written by God-hating heretics that just appeals to our emotions and makes us feel so good when we sing it. You know what I'm talking about here, right? It's the same temptation actually I faced when I came here. Uh, When I came here, you guys realize we had three digits in the bank account. I came here for $700 a month knowing that this church was on its last leg. I, I was warned of that ahead of time by the elder who, uh, who had contacted me. When I came here, yeah, things didn't look good. We needed the seats to be filled. We needed people to come. And the elder who recruited me, who contacted me, said this to me. He said, you just preach the word faithfully and we'll trust that the Lord will provide and we'll see what happens. So if you want to know why we're open today, why the church is still in existence today, it's because the Lord provided. It's not because of me. It's not, I had no idea what I was doing or what I was getting myself into. So it's not because of me. It's not because of what a great preacher or a great pastor I am. I'm not. Uh, and it's certainly not because I fell back on some kind of gimmick to, uh, to, to grow the church. But that's the advice that I gave my friend as well. Preach the word faithfully. Don't use these difficult circumstances to justify 
worshiping God differently than he has instructed. Preach the word faithfully. Trust that the Lord will provide, knowing that even if he doesn't, it's not because of you if you are being faithful. Maybe it's actually a judgment against the community that a church where the gospel is faithfully being preached would be shut down due to finances. But it's Christ's church. It's his church. It's not mine. It's not anybody else's. And thus we must do things God's way, knowing one thing for sure. God will not bless disobedience, and He will not accept any excuses for doing things according to our own wisdom and our own understanding instead of His. Listen, God doesn't need our creativity. He needs our faithfulness. He needs our obedience. That's it. In our day, obedience to God is obedience to the Scriptures, to his word. In Saul's day, he had both uh, the written word of God, but he also had Samuel, who was a prophet, a mouthpiece for God. And it was because Saul disobeyed God's word spoken through Samuel that he now gets rebuked, that Saul now gets rebuked. Richard Phillips notes in his commentary that, quote, we may be tempted to think that Samuel, and therefore God, was excessive in his rebuke of Saul, but this example shows us what we consider to be small matters of negligence are often considered by God to be major indicators of a heart that is not devoted to him, end quote. I'll say what Vody says. If you can't say amen, say ouch. <laughs> Obedience to God matters. Down to the details. God doesn't negotiate on how He is to be worshipped. And difficult circumstances never justify disobedience with God. God will not bless disobedience. And so we should expect, as a result of this, we should expect hard times to hit Israel. Which is exactly what we're going to see as this chapter concludes. Let's conclude with verses, 20, uh, verses 15 to 23 of chapter 13. It says, Then Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. Now Saul and his son Jonathan and the people who were present with them were staying in Geba of Benjamin while the Philistines camped at Mishmash. And the raiders came from the camp of the Philistines in three companies, three, three waves, in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah to the land of Shual, and another, toward, uh, another company turned toward Bet-Horon. And another company turned toward the border, which overlooks the valley of Zeboim, toward the wilderness. Now, no blacksmith could be found in all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So all Israel went, to the, went down to the Philistines, each to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his hoe. The, char uh, the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares, the mattocks, the forks, and the axes, and to fix the hose. So it came about on the day of battle that neither sword nor spear was found in the hands of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, but they were found with Saul and his son Jonathan. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the, uh, to the pass of Mishmash. As you read, as you listen, as you look at the circumstances here. All I can say is look at how the people are oppressed in every way imaginable. Where does this oppression come from? It's 
traces right back to Saul's disobedience. And so consider their need. Consider the need of the Israelites for a king who is a man after God's own heart. A king who doesn't use difficult circumstances as an excuse or as an opportunity to sin. Nothing has gone according to plan as far as Saul's concerned here. Everything is just a disastrous failure. Saul's left with this army of about 600 men. The Philistines send in three waves of, of raiders to, uh, to invade Israel, fanning out and going in different directions, and they absolutely rout the Israelites. And it results in the Philistines occupying towns and tightening their grip on everything to such an extent that the Israelites uh, had no way of rising up. No way of getting themselves armed. They now look like they are hopeless. To even have gardening tools and to even have their gardening tools fixed requires almost everything that they would make in a single day. But what we read about here in, in this part of the passage is an oppression that is as severe as anything that Israel has experienced since, well, about chapter 7 of 1 Samuel. But given what we're told here, the, the, the greatness of this oppression, it sounds like the beginning of the end, doesn't it? It's, it looks hopeless. Without a king who is a man after God's own heart, the fact is, God's people suffer. God's people suffer. That's what we see here. Now in time, in short time, God would deliver His people again. But Saul shows us that we need a king who doesn't sin and who doesn't make excuses for sin. We need a king who is a man after God's own heart if we are to receive God's blessings. God requires a man after His own heart to lead His people. And while it would be said of David, of course, that he was a man after God's own heart, it's David's offspring who was truly a man after God's own heart. He was the one who was promised the establishment of an everlasting, eternal kingdom. Of course, we're talking about Jesus as a descendant of David. Jesus would be most fully a man after God's own heart because He was and is God in the flesh. Like Saul, and like you and me for that matter, Jesus encountered fierce trials and temptations. His ministry started with trials, temptations, going 40 days in the wilderness, being tempted by the devil in every way imaginable. But ultimately, he ended his earthly ministry also with another trial, the ultimate trial, his crucifixion, when he bore the sin of all who believe on him suffering the wrath of God against those sins in their place. And he honored the Father in those trials victoriously. He didn't use it as an excuse to sin. He remained without blemish, which was proven by His resurrection from the dead on the third day. Jesus' victory in His trials revealed Him to be a man who is after God's own heart in the fullest and most ultimate sense. And because this is true, what it tells us, the comfort that it gives us, is it reminds us that we have a king who leads us in righteousness. We have a king who reigns over his everlasting kingdom from his eternal throne in heaven where he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Even though we have sinned 
And even though our sin would justly condemn us to hell, Christ has redeemed us. He redeemed all who believe on Him from the penalty of sin in His life and death by living the perfect life. And His perfect righteousness is imputed, is credited to all who believe so that we may be forgiven, so that we may be redeemed, adopted, accepted, and welcomed into the family of God as recipients of His grace and inheritors of His promises. And it's all because of Christ's merit. It's all because we have a king who was, in the most ultimate sense, a man after God's own heart. We can know the blessings of perfect obedience to God, not because of our obedience, but because of Christ, because he was always perfectly obedient to the Father. And so, Jesus, and only Jesus, is the faithful king who protects us from all the Philistines in the world around us. And I pray that you would be comforted in knowing that. Be comforted by his sovereignty. And I pray that you would know him, believe in him, follow him, serve him, obey him, worshiping him the way that he instructs, and all without compromise. There are no excuses for disobedience with God. His grace is always sufficient. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the way that it instructs us. Thank You for the way that it corrects us. Sometimes for the way it even rebukes us. Father, we thank You that Your Word does instruct us in how to worship You. We can only confess that everything that comes from us is tainted by sin. And so we could never devise a way of worshiping You in our own wisdom, our our own understanding. And so we thank You that Your Word does reveal how to worship You. Lord, we thank You that with You there is forgiveness of sins. And though we have all used sin, uh, difficult circumstances as as an excuse to sin, O Lord, we confess our sins to You knowing that with You there is forgiveness, there is grace. And we pray that keeping this chapter in mind that we would have the wisdom not to use difficult circumstances as an excuse for disobedience. Grow us in our faith. Grow us in our understanding. Grow us in our obedience. Help us to understand and to live by the fact that we know that your grace is always sufficient. So we pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us that you would provide for us and that you would forgive us in times when we are not obedient. But our prayer is that we would walk in obedience to you and live lives that are pleasing to you for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.